Hey friends, welcome to the Well-Tended Life Podcast. What is a well-tended life? Well, let me start by telling you what it's not. A well-tended life is not a set-it-and-forget-it life, nor is it a perfect life. It is, though, a life that is worked on every day, in the sunshine and through the storms. And the truth is, what worked in our life gardens last season may not work in the next. That's why, here at the Well-Tended Life Podcast, we're interviewing people who have grown and bloomed true in a variety of seasons and who are willing to share their well-tended wisdom and weed-whacking advice with us. Listen in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Well-Tended Life. I'm your host, Perry Wilt, a speaker, writer, and heart cultivator who is on a mission to help you flourish through every season. I'm here today with author, speaker, and serial entrepreneur, Christina Wallace, who has graciously agreed to come chat with us about finding a work-life balance. Um, Maybe we'll talk a little bit about failing forward, um, and I'm sure a whole lot more. So welcome, Christina. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, goodness. So um, why don't you just take a minute and give our audience the 411 on uh, who is Christina Wallace? <laughs> so um, many years ago, I finally figured out how to introduce myself, um, which is I say I'm a human Venn diagram who has built a career at the intersection of business, technology and the arts. And I came up with this introduction because I've had such a zigzag path professionally, but also personally. I, I I only do things that I'm personally invested in. And, and if I just recite my resume to you, it sounds like I'm a little flighty um, or couldn't pick one thing and stick to it. And I I don't think that's representative of, of who I am. I think I am uh, opportunistic, but also very strategic. And so I came up with this way to separate my identity from my job title in any given day. My job title changes every two to four years, um, but I am who I am. And I've been this way since since I can remember. So, um, so I'm a human Venn diagram and uh, I bring that sort of intersectional lens, that ability to connect ideas and people and, um, and insights across different worlds. I bring that into any context, any room I'm in. So that's me. I love that. So... <laughs> Now you can now see the my, dog shows up. Yeah, he's making herself comfortable. Is this a dog uh, or a cat? Because that that's it, a it, very cat-like thing. Probably a cross between the two. I we actually uh, she's what we call a fancy Walmart, which means we got her free in the Walmart parking lot. <laughs> yes. So for those listening at home, my dog is now crawled on top of my my chair and uh, is perched on it. She's ridiculous. <laughs> um. So, but I, I love. I love this. And when I, when I saw uh, your Ted talk about being a human Venn diagram, I, I, I so resonated with it, with it because I was that kid in high school who, when someone said like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, I, I didn't know. I, 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 I like, I, I knew all the things I didn't want to be. Mm-hmm. And I knew the things that I was interested in, but I wasn't, I wasn't like my friends who were like, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a this. Mm -hmm. Um, and I thought something was wrong with me, Mm -hmm. you know, like, 
how, mm-hmm. how come I don't know, but I yeah. think it's because I'm very similar in that is that I, I have had a million different jobs and a million different paths and none of them, like you say, don't always sound like they would go together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was very reassuring, I think, um, to think of it in that terms. Sure. I remember the first time I was asked that, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was probably in like third or fourth grade and I have no idea where this came from. But I said, without even like a, a blinking, I said, I want to be an astronaut, president, a professor, and an author all at the same time. Not sequentially. I want to do them all at the same time. And of course, everyone laughed at how precocious this child. But I was like, how fit? I mean, I'm never going to be an astronaut. I have passed uh, that that horizon where that might be yeah. a possibility. Um, <laughs> but how like funny and and in tune was I, you know, eight or nine years old that I, I had these big ambitions, but I wanted to do them simultaneously. And that I didn't see that that was completely, uh, impossible (laughs) that that you could be more than one thing at any given time, whether it's astronaut or president or, you know, whatever underwater basket weaver, this idea that you could only be one thing never landed at any age for me. Yeah. Well, I, anytime I hear somebody ask a kid that I'm like, I look at the kid and I'm like, don't fall for it. You don't have to pick one. And like today they're Correct. asking these kids, they're asking my kids mm-hmm. to, to pick a career path when they're in the eighth grade. Yes. Yes. And you're like, first of all, <laughs> the world is changing so fast that half of these kids careers, what they will end up being don't exist yet. So stop asking them to opt into the jobs of the last century. We're interested in what might be possible for the future. But secondly, how dare you ask a 12-year-old to pick one thing and start to focus? Like, I'm 39. I'm still not focusing. I have no desire to focus. Focus, it might work for some people. I want my neurosurgeon to focus, for sure. Yes. But, and I am not that person, and I think a lot of us don't need to be all in, I think focus, especially when we, we imprint that as the narrative so young that eventually, even if it's not today, eventually you have to pick one thing and that's all you get to be. It creates this mindset. I mean, I see this in, in undergrad so clearly, these high ambitious, you know, 19 year olds at Harvard where they're like, ah, I, I, I'm going to get rid of every part of me that doesn't fit this mold. And And I'm going to carve off these things that someday I'm going to really miss. It's like phantom limb syndrome or something. You're like, I used to be this other thing. And um, I'm the queen of mixing metaphors. So I'm going to jump from phantom limbs to puzzle pieces. But but I say one of the things that I have really come to embrace about myself is that I'm a very strangely shaped puzzle piece. And I love that. I love that. But it means I, I don't fit everywhere. And I spent a lot of my childhood, a lot of my adolescence feeling like I didn't fit in, um, which can feel really lonely until one day I sort of, I reframed it. I don't remember even how I reframed it, but it was this lie of like, I just have to figure out where I fit. And, and because I'm so strangely shaped, it means that typically I need to find places where maybe I'm the first puzzle piece to lock into place. And then I can put the other puzzle pieces around me. If I'm the last one to show up, and they have exactly this hole and I don't fit it, 
then either I don't get to join or more likely I start trying to like shave off little pieces, little corners of my puzzle piece in order to like jam it in the puzzle. And that doesn't feel very good. Right. And so, and so that's partly why I landed toward entrepreneurship. If you're the founder of a company, if you're building something, you're the first one in, then you can surround yourself with the pieces that you don't bring to the table. Um, but that was that was one of my first insights of like not fitting in is not a, a, a judgment call on me. It's not like a, a moral failing. It's just an observation and a bit of a challenge to say, okay, let's figure out where I do fit in and under what circumstances my weird edges and angles and shapes can become an asset somewhere. Oh my gosh, that is so good. It's, it's, <laughs> it's such a great reframing. That's such a great reframing because I mean, the truth is we are, we are all different puzzle shapes, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and, and really owning that. And I, and I think you're right about the whole entrepreneurship. I think it's the thing that I, I, I also am a serial entrepreneur. So we, mm-hmm. we own a restaurant, we have vacation rentals, I've got this career. Uh, and so, uh, I love the the building of it and the creating of it in the way that I would do it, not in the way that other people would do it. Um, and yeah. it's always, I always tell people like, I, you know, I like a sandbox. Like I do like to know what <laughs> sandbox, but I need it to have like cardboard edges so that I can push through and make it, <laughs> make it what I need to be. Sure. Um, so gosh, I, I, I love that. I think that's such a great reframing. I always, I always tell kids to really, focus more on like who they want to be, not what they want to do, because you can be who you are, no matter what it is and where you go to do something that do part and a change, like, you know, even just being a student and then being a, you know, a a wife or a mother or a, you know, a sister or whatever, those things change over, over Mm -hmm. time. But Mm -hmm. to be focused on, no, I want to be, want to be kind. I want to be creative. I want to be an encourager. I want to be, you know, a developer, you know, all of those kinds of things. Then no matter where you are, you can, you can find a spot for it. Well, and the great part about that too, I mean, you're you're absolutely talking about separating identity from work, right? From output. And the great part about do, if you do that well, if you know who you are separate from what you do, if what you do gets taken away from you, which, you know, many people in the last couple of weeks have experienced, um, and certainly, uh, I have experience. I know like this is a rite of passage at some point. You're going to be fired or laid off, almost guaranteed, unless you are an entrepreneur your whole life. And then at some point you're going to fail. Um, When what you do is taken away from you, you don't lose who you are. But that's a really um, hard thing sometimes to cultivate before you've had that experience because this this world, and by this world, I, I tend to mean the U.S., and I, I know not every country is exactly the same in this, but we tend to really emphasize what we do. That's how we introduce ourselves. That's how we, you know, make a very quick shorthand understanding of, of people, right? We, we put them in boxes, and those boxes tend to be based on professions. Um, and it can be really hard to lose that identity if that is how you've always seen yourself. It's, it's true. The, the rug gets pulled and, and I think you're right though. I think sometimes you have to go through it to really understand it. Um, and to, to go, I'm not doing that again. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm, you know, uh, I, I lost my job, mm-hmm. uh, gosh, must be 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And I, I was working for a very big company. It was, I mean, I worked for Crayola. It was like, I was named the salesperson of the year in, um, in November. And I lost my job to a whole, <laughs> like, you know, they, they did a whole reorg and I lost yep. my job in January. Oh so, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Like just a few short months. That is whiplash. Ago. It was total whiplash. And um, and it was all for my good. I mean, it was really, it was one of those things that it couldn't have been the more perfect timing for mm-hmm. what, what what I needed to do for our, our restaurant business and et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't feel like that in the moment. Oh, no. <laughs> it, it, um, it really, it rocked my um, identity in a way that really actually propelled me on the path that I'm on. Uh, because the first thing I did was I completely I went into like overprove myself mode, mm-hmm. like they were wrong. And mm-hmm. so I got involved in everything and basically just, you know, kicked butt at everything I did. I think trying to prove myself that I was still okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it ended up doing was it, it put me into um, basically burying myself under the weeds of busyness because I said yes to all of these things and I lost myself. I lost yeah. who I was. I was, my, my family was starting to wither. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really was that process mm-hmm. of, of uncovering all of that, that really set me on this well-tended life path, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's where I'm supposed to be. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that you don't know that in the moment yeah. though, when, when those hard, those hard challenges hit. Yeah. And it's so easy to postpone feeling by doing right. Uh, Let's just do all the things so that I don't have to feel. (laughs) I mean, I am, I am the queen of that. (laughs) I'm the queen of that. It's just, it's so easy to say, well, as long as I stay busy, I don't have to face what just happened. And like, maybe just maybe I can prove to myself that um, what happened shouldn't have happened. Um, Whether or not, uh, you know, what it should even have anything to do with anything. Right. It's, the world that we live in is is roiled with disruption <laughs> at every level economic political certainly business disruption this is going to happen over and over and over again the relationship that our parents and our grandparents had with work and with specific companies right that relationship doesn't exist anymore <clears throat> my grandfather built cars on the assembly line of general motors for 42 years yeah. Same company, same job his entire life. And they took care of him. My mom has had the same career, a couple different places, but same career as a secretary her whole life. That is no longer an option. No. And, you know, in some ways that really sucks. There is a, an, you know, an, an economic uh, calculus that companies have made in the last 20, 30 years that it's uh, it's better for their bottom line to treat workers as inc- entirely replaceable, fungible, interchangeable units of resource. They literally call them human resources, not people. Um, and you know, that never occurred to me. Mm-hmm. Y'all stop and think about that. <laughs> human resources that can be replaced by other types of resources if and yes. when we choose, right? That is that is the relationship that that bigger companies certainly have with, with employees now. And that sucks on the one hand. And on the other hand, I think it's incredibly freeing because one of the things that our parents didn't have was this ability to change their mind and do something else 
society would deem that as very flighty, very, uh, you know, disloyal. Um, and they had this, this forced mentality of this linear career. Once you step on, hope you chose well, because that's what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. Like the ability to zig and zag was not possible mm-hmm. 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And so while we don't have the same support and loyalty from our employers as they might have, that gives us freedom outside of this like straitjacket of linear life that no one wanted in the first place. And quite frankly, I think it frees us from this erroneous belief that work is a family, <laughs> that our jobs are our purpose, right? It, none of this is true. You can have a lot of fulfillment in your work. I certainly do. But it's not what I was put on this earth to do at the end of the day, right? Like my purpose is so much greater than my job at any given time. And and I can walk away from work without losing myself. Mm-hmm. And I I want, you know, I know that's a privilege. That's a privilege. Not everyone is in that position, but for the people who can, I want them to see how much more of their life there is than just their title, their salary, their power and prestige, whether someone, you know, is impressed by them at a party. Right. Talk a little more about that idea of, because I think that's very counter, that's very counter to what so many people say, which is, uh, you know, find your purpose and make that your job. Mm. Mm. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, I really struggle with that. Um, with that entire, uh, ethos. I mean, this idea of like, if you find work, you love, it'll never feel like work. Work right. is going to feel like work. Work is hard. Work should be hard. Work should be hard. Work is work. And you can find uh, uh, work you love. You can find work that uh, that gives you the ability to grow, that gives you the opportunity to put your, your best talents forward, that gives you a community of folks that, that you can find and build relationships with. All of those are wonderful things. Um, you, can, you can do that building widgets by the way. And you can work doing something you love and have none of those things. Um, so, so just because you love something doesn't mean it's going to be a great job. And if we convince ourselves that like, well, I love it, then we can forgive all of the terrible ways that many workers are treated with unpaid overtime, uh, promotions in name only. (laughs) Um, the the complete replaceability that that employee employers have uh, over us, you know, at any given time, we can be told in 2022 that workers have the upper hand, that there's a pandemic labor shortage, that you can negotiate all you want, and then we get to the first weeks of 2023, and you know, companies across the board are just slashing 10% of their employees and sending them a mass email at two in the morning people who have been there 15, 16 years, who are Mm -hmm. on a work trip to another country, wake up to an email that you no longer work here. If, if that's how this whole thing can end, then you better have other things in your life that bring you joy and growth and fulfillment and, um, and are the reason you get up in the morning. Work cannot be the only thing 
that gets you excited. It just, it can't, and it shouldn't. Yeah. What took you down this path to write this book? (laughs) So, so Christina's new book uh, comes out in April. April. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, We're recording this at the end of January, but um, uh, chances are this will probably come out near your, near your book release, but um, it's called the portfolio life, how to future proof your career avoid burnout and build a life bigger than your business card. Hmm. Like it feels like what we're talking about has got to just be stringing right, right up to that. Yeah. So I started thinking about these ideas 15 years ago. I went to business school uh, after a very short first career in the arts. I started uh, my, my life in theater and in opera. I worked at the Metropolitan Opera and um, and it became really clear early on that the nonprofit arts world, at least in the U.S., is not really a sustainable career for anyone unless you have an external source of funding in your life, mm-hmm. unless you have a trust fund or a very wealthy spouse, um, or you really don't mind a life of poverty. Um, but but in every other version of the world. Um, you are supposed to take note of how much you love the work and then forgive them for not building a sustainable business model that allows them to pay their employees a livable wage. Um, And uh, it became very clear this was not going to work for me. I come from a blue collar family in Michigan with no trust fund. And uh, and so I was like, okay, I got to figure out something else to do, uh, at least as a quote day job, even if I want to keep the arts in my life in some other way. So I went to business school and I stumbled across a couple of, um, of kind of key ideas that, that stuck with me, but didn't quite, um, I didn't understand how powerful they were until a little bit later. But one of them was this idea of portfolio theory which we learned in first semester finance. And, you know, I grew up um, in a family whose entire financial portfolio was savings and checking accounts. <laughs> and so I, I didn't learn a lot of personal finance at the dinner table, but but I got to study it when I got to, to Harvard. And I learned that you can build a portfolio that allows you to, to take risks, to seek some really outsized rewards, and then to mitigate that risk through diversification And then crucially, you can rebalance that portfolio when your needs change, when you need different things, when your time horizons change, when your risk uh, appetite changes, you just rebalance. Like no one, no one judges you for rebalancing your financial portfolio. Um, That's expected. You go through seasons, you need different things. And then I had this incredible professor, Clay Christensen. Uh, who many folks may may know of his ideas around disruption theory. He's the reason why everyone in tech is disrupting all the time. Um, he was this fantastic man who taught this wonderful course on building uh, innovative companies. And then the very last day of the class, he gave us this sort of last lecture on how we could use a lot of these business frameworks that he'd been teaching us to manage our lives. Um, And that often, you know, when it came down to it, it would be really easy in life to put that incremental hour that we had here and there into work, because frequently we get a really fast feedback loop with work. You hit the sales, you get the award, you see the bonus, you know that that work, that hour was worth it, worth it. Right. 
And in so many other parts of our lives, that incremental hour, you, you know, you, you invested in your three-year-old, you don't really know for like, I don't know, 25 years, whether or not that hour was worth it. <laughs> um, you put it into exercise or sort of like, I don't know, am I healthier because I gave that hour to lifting weights or running versus not? Um, you put it into a hobby and you're like, okay, after the end of the hour, like maybe I feel a little calmer, but was that worth the hour when I could have hit my bonus numbers with it? Right. So it's really easy to apply that, that incremental time, those, those resources to the things that you get that immediate feedback loop on. But that same person would say like, does that matter more than these other things? No, my work doesn't matter more than my family, more than my health, more than my mental health. Um, intellectually, you would never make that trade-off, but it's really easy to fall into the habit of making that trade-off if you don't have a different way to sort of allocate that time and energy. And so he really emphasized being intentional about measuring and managing our lives as, as much as we were our careers. And this, this one class was 80 minutes long. It was so meaningful to me that I asked him to, to repeat the lecture to the entire graduating class. Um, I was this one, you know, class of 90 students who got in by virtue of a lottery. And I said, no, I, I I think everyone needs to hear this. So he gave the talk to everyone and, um, and everyone's like, no, 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 this is a really big idea. And so he turned it into an article for the Harvard Business Review. Uh, which became the most read article in the history of HBR. And so that became the book, How Will You Measure Your Life? Which is one of the most influential books out there on this topic. I, I believe it, the impact will be far greater than his theory of disruption. But these two ideas, one that you could use business frameworks to, to manage and measure your life. And two, you could use portfolios to go after risk but also diversify and to rebalance when you need it. These two ideas were seeded really early. And then I kind of forgot about them for a little bit. And then I went off and built a couple of companies and, uh, and my first one flat out failed. (laughs) It, it failed in delightfully dramatic fashion. And, um, and at the time I was all in on this company. I was working seven days a week, 17, 18 hours a day. I was dating no one. I was single. I was, you know, living by myself. I didn't see my friends um, because I had no time for them. And when I lost my company, I lost everything. You know, I had, I had no money. I literally had to pay my rent with a cash advance off my credit card. I was flat out broke. Um, And it felt, it felt like a death, right? I had to grieve the end of this. Yes. And when I got back on my feet and I realized, you know, for my investors, I was, you know, first of all, I was terrified because I lost investor money in the millions. And like, that was a number I'd never believed I would ever see growing up. And I'm like, I lost that money. And, and every one of them just sort of wrote it off. They're like, I I knew that risk when I got into this, I have a portfolio, like this doesn't, doesn't kill. I, I can still put dinner on the table for my family. And I realized I was like, for them, this is just part of doing business. They take a bunch of bets. Most of them fail, a couple pay off. But for me, it was everything. And when I lost it, I lost everything. And that was the first time that I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm never doing this again. No matter what I do, I'm going to have other other pieces of my portfolio. It doesn't necessarily even need to be other income sources, though multiple income sources 
is delightful. Um, uh, but it just means that I have to have other things, relationships, investing in my health, hobbies. I, I need other bits so that if and when any piece of my portfolio goes to zero, it doesn't mean the whole portfolio goes to zero. And that was sort of the second time it hit. And then over the last 10 years, I've been talking about this. I wrote a column for Forbes for quite a few years with, I threw up a bunch of different um, uh, uh, frameworks and tools and templates that I had developed for my own use that I thought I'll just share them. And, and they really kept resonating with people. And I gave a couple of talks and, um, and I just kept getting all these people like sending me emails saying, I would love to sit down with you for an hour. And at a certain point I was like, I have, I, I don't know available hours. <laughs> so how do I get scale on these ideas? And finally my agent was like, just turn it into a book. <laughs> like, duh. Um, yeah. and so I've been working on this for the last three years, but, but really, I mean, I wrote this book to be practical like hands-on, it's like the big ideas are just the first third. And then it's like, get out your sticky notes and your, your Sharpie and carve some time out for this, because I want you to be able to put these ideas into practice and think about what's in your Venn diagram. What are the pieces of you that maybe you've hidden or carved off or put away for a little bit that could become really meaningful parts of who you are again? Um, how do you put together a portfolio for what you need right now. I just went through a big transition having children a couple of years ago and my portfolio had to dramatically change. <laughs> and in some, you know, there are moments I'm like, oh, remember when I used to all, <laughs> like travel the world on a whim? I could go skiing. I could, you know, spend an uninterrupted two hours at dinner, all these things that I used to have. And I'm like, yeah, but this is just a season. This is a chapter. Mm -hmm where those things, the allocation has gone to zero. And at some point, my kids can wipe their own butts and put on their shoes and sleep through the night, please. Uh, and then I can rebalance again. So that's yeah. why I wrote this book. Oh my gosh, it's so good. I mean, I'm literally like, when's it coming out? <laughs> like, what day? I cannot wait to read it. I mean, um, can you tell I'm a little excited about this book coming out? I am, and I know after listening to this interview, you are gonna want to have this book in your life tending toolbox too. Just as a reminder, it's called The Portfolio Life, how to foolproof your career, avoid burnout, and build a life bigger than your business card. Now, it comes out on Amazon, on April 18th, but go ahead and get that pre-order in. That's always important to an author. The more you can pre-order, um, the more it helps their first day sales, which goes towards making all those awesome lists that helps more people to be able to be exposed to this awesome wisdom inside of this book. So make sure you go pre-order it and uh, buy one for all your friends. And now let's get back to the rest of my conversation with Christina. God, I mean, there's so many yummy bits in there. Um, I wrote down the words like measuring and managing our lives. And I think because I think so many of us are like walking through 
our lives and really have no idea where that extra hour could come from. Right. The Mm -hmm. one that you were talking about earlier of like this, because they're just, you're, you're wandering through, through, but the the time is just kind of going away. Mm -hmm. And I think it's such an important thing for people to do, to sit down and to see truly like where your time is going. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. Do you have some (laughs) tactics? I'm so thankful that I'm so thankful that you're, you're talking about your book as tactics, because I think so many times, like you'll go hear a speaker and they have these great ideas, but there's no actual practical application and, and ideas are great, but unless you actually can implement something, um, you know, so, so can you share with us some of the tactics? Yeah. So, so part one of the book is the big idea. Part two is like the workshop with Christina. And then part three is literally how to operationalize this. How do you do this? And each chapter takes kind of frameworks and and tools from different components of the C-suite, the CEO, the COO, the chief operating officer, uh, the chief financial officer, all of these different, like, how do, how would they think about this if they were managing this? And the time question is such an important one because you're kind of like, what, what do you mean incremental hour? Do you get an right. incremental hour in your day? Like <laughs> no one told me I was supposed to get this incremental hour. Um, so if you think about managing your time, there are sort of two big ideas there that I, I really latched onto. One is, and this is, this is very much a do as I say, not as I do, because I'm still struggling with this. But one is in the world of operations management, um, they study, uh, uh, you know, among other things, um, manufacturing lines. There's a lot that can be learned about how they have been set up and optimized. And one of the, the things that continues to come out in the research is the world's best run manufacturing lines operate at 85% capacity. Not 100%, not 110%, whatever that imaginary thing is. They operate at 85% capacity for three reasons. One, to leave time for maintenance (laughs) because planned downtime is cheaper than unplanned downtime. But Christina rest, (laughs) rest is for the weary. Rest is for the, I know, I know. Oh my Lord. My grandmother's voice in the back of my head of like, why are you taking a nap? There's work to be right. Like I, I am so programmed that rest is laziness. And I have to, I actually had my, <laughs> I had my mother among her many talents. She likes cross-stitching. I had her cross-stitch a couple of my favorite quotes from the book. Um, and one of them is rest is a requirement, not a reward. Yes. Rest. Like you think about athletes, athletes have to recover after a training session. No one looks at a marathoner who's resting and saying that's lazy. You just finished running 26 miles, but you still have legs. Let's get going, right? Like you recognize you have to recover. A marathoner who doesn't rest is going to get injured. And that puts them out of the game entirely. So so operating at 85%, number one, gives you planned maintenance. Number two, it gives you space for the do-overs. Like it doesn't assume that we are going to live an error-free life. Like mistakes happen mess ups, you know, are, are, they occur. And if you have no slack in the system, tiny little things can completely blow up your day. But if you leave space for like, at some point, I'm probably going to screw up and I'm going to make sure that I have room to fix it. 
that brings the stress level down a ton. And then the third thing is it gives you the space for the surges, right? If you've got a really important customer who comes to you with an urgent order that says, ah, please, please, please fit me in. You have space to say yes without it straining everything else. Um, Again, do as I say, not as I do. I'm working on this. But so, so part of this is like, how do you calculate your capacity utilization? That's the term. Um, of how much of, of your capacity, however you want to define that. And by the way, you do not have the same number of hours as other people. Some people have housekeepers and drivers and live in nannies. And some people are taking care of aging parents uh, right. and other people have to commute three hours each way, right? We all have different uh, available capacity, um, including you at different times in your life. My capacity right, right now is significantly less than it was 10 years ago. So, so think about what is your capacity? How much am I using? Am I over promising my time right now, which is my biggest flaw um, so that I'm setting myself up to feel this constant stress? Because when you have zero slack in the system, you never get to enjoy doing the work that you're doing because the entire time you're hovering overhead being like, You've got seven more minutes and then we got to move, right? You are, you're monitoring and the anxiety levels all around like, okay, okay, where are the the mess ups going to be? And like, should I worry about this thing? And you never get to be in the flow. You never get to enjoy the thing you're doing because you're already thinking about the next thing. When you know you have slack, you can just be in it. And when you come back up, you say, okay, what's next? So, so that's one piece. Another tool that I really fell in love with in this is okay. That's, that's great, Christina, but like, I'm already overscheduled. Like, how do I go down to 85%? And that is, um, I Marie Kondo'd my calendar. Marie Kondo became famous for tidying up your home. I live in a very tidy home because it's very small and I do not like clutter. And so I was like, what does she have to offer me? Turns out And I love to fold my laundry that way. And I love that I can see all of my t-shirts. If y'all are not, if y'all have not watched any of these Marie (laughs) Kondo's, it is life-changing. You're no longer going to be digging through your drawers. It's brilliant. It's true. It's true. But I love her system. I was like, I don't need this for my t-shirts, but you know what I do need it for is my calendar. Because she has the system where you gather all like things and then you ask yourself, is it actually bringing me joy? And the things that are not, you thank it for its service and then you get rid of it. Donate it, you toss it, you sell it, whatever, you get rid of it. But this idea that just because it's in your life doesn't mean it, it deserves to stay in your life and you are allowed to say goodbye to things intentionally um, is interesting. Cause I'm sure you all have things in your home where you're like, well, it was on sale. I don't need it. I don't want it, but like, it was a good deal. Uh, and you're like, yeah. And it's the reason the door, the drawer won't close. Right. Um, or it was a gift. I never liked it, but I felt guilty. And so I've kept it for 20 years. And if you really face it down, you're like, is this here? Cause I want it to be here. Or is it here? Cause it's here. And I've just sort of, it's default now it's already here. So when I, when I decided to do this to my calendar, I pulled all like things together. I, I did a little analysis from like a sample week. And I realized that there were a number of things I was giving my time to out of like a default. Like they'd been on my calendar for years. I didn't really like doing them. There were things that I had FOMO about. I didn't want to miss out on them because they seemed cool, but I actually did not enjoy doing. 
There were other things that I, I liked the idea of doing, like mentoring. I love mentoring. And at the time, I was doing a lot of like one-hour, one-off advice sessions to budding entrepreneurs who were like friends of friends of friends of like someone's neighbor. Um, but I never saw these people again. I gave them an hour of my time. I told them what I thought. And then I had no idea if this mattered, if it was useful. I got no feedback and 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 didn't really develop a relationship. And what I realized was I want to do mentoring. I like the early stage of startups, but I want to do it with just a handful of folks that I can see progress over time and that I can build a relationship with. Same number of hours, but a very different level of joy to that work. Um that's part of what led me to where I am now, which is being a professor of entrepreneurship uh, at, at back at Harvard. Uh, and so I, I gathered like things. I, I did this analysis of what was bringing me joy. And then I went through the very painful process of saying no to things, <laughs> which took some practice. Um, yeah. But I got really good at replying to an email or sending a note, a text that says, thank you for thinking of me. Unfortunately, this doesn't work for my schedule, period. I'm not going to explain to you why. I'm not going to give you the opening to negotiate. I'm just going to say it doesn't work for me. And it might not work for me because I would rather be taking a nap. <laughs> it might not work for me because I have something else scheduled that you might not think is more important, but I do. Um, or it might not work for me because I just don't want to. Right. But whatever that is, I, I got really good. And so but like clutter in your home, your calendar clutter will creep back in. This is a process you have to do over and over again. And so whether you make it a spring cleaning or you find whatever that cadence is that says, I'm going to go back through and just rip out the clutter to make space for serendipity luck. You can't be lucky if there's no space for luck in your life, mm -mm. um, to make space for the things that I care about. Like no one else gets to decide my calendar. This is, this is what I, I have landed very hard on. Um, and so those are kind of the, the two big things around the time piece of how do you carve out that time and then protect, uh, and fiercely defend those boundaries. Yes. That's what gives you the space for rest for redoing, for slack in the system to ensure you don't end up hospitalized for burnout, which I have been. Yeah. Oh it's my not God. great. <laughs> no. Well, because it, you crash. You, you yes. yeah. There's, there's a point where everybody physically breaks down and you blame all the other things except for what it really is, which is you're being buried in busyness. Yeah. Uh, what, one of the tools I used, I went through a very similar process. And uh, one of the tools I used was I, I, I wrote down on my phone. I just grabbed my notes and, and quickly jotted down like all the things I'd rather be doing if I wasn't so busy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it was, it was, you know, like cooking dinner for my family or, you know, it was, it was very, very simple things, but I was shocked that in, in, you know, less than a few minutes, I had like 30 things on the list mm -hmm. and I just, I, and I use that list as a fuel. Yeah. So when, you know, when, when I did go to say no, I knew what I was saying no for. Yes. Cause I wanted yes. more things on my list and less of those, but also mm -hmm. it's the same thing. Like you were talking about the, the clutter creeps in. Mm -hmm. Right. So a part of my journal process every day is I, I look and, and look around and see what weeds are cropping up in my life. And for mm -hmm. me, my biggest weed is the weed of busyness. 
Yes. And, um, but it doesn't always necessarily look like a bunch of different things on my calendar. It may be like one thing that's way too big or giving me stress. And so the other mm-hmm. thing that you have to look for are, are those other symptoms mm-hmm. of busyness or symptoms mm-hmm. of stress or, 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 you know, am I being short with the people around me? Am I disconnecting? Yes. Am I, am mm-hmm. I doing all of those things? And when I start to see those things, that's when you got to go back and you got to go, okay, let's start with the calendar. Let's look, you know, physically, mentally, all, all of the things, Mm -hmm. um, gosh, what a great way. The multitasking is usually my indicator that like, I have, I have overcommitted. It's the point where I'm like texting while walking, while like in my head, calculating how I'm going to get to pick up the kids and do the dinner and do the things. And then it's the point where like someone nearly runs you over because you're jaywalking and you're like, this is maybe not the best idea. No. And it's funny too, because I think it's, that's oh, oh, the word multitasking seems to be really glorified. Yes. You know, <laughs> that, that women are supposed to be really good at that. And, um, you know, it frustrates me to no end that we have somehow created these like morally, you know, uh, positive frames for what is otherwise like multitasking was a word invented to to describe a computer process, (laughs) how a computer system could run multiple processes simultaneously. It was never intended for humans. That's not how our brains work. And then we go down these paths and we suddenly like glorify multitasking. We glorify busyness. We glorify workaholism. We glorify one-way loyalty from worker to a company, but never from company to worker. And, and somehow that is supposed to make up for all of the other fractures in this like late stage capitalism we have found ourselves in. <laughs> And it's frustrating because everyone knows it's a bum deal, but no one really will call it out. Oh my gosh. Hey friends, do you want to get new podcast alerts and life tending tips and tricks to your email inbox? If so, then make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter by clicking on the website link in the show notes or heading on over to thewelltendedlife.com. Also, I am now booking 2023 speaking engagements for both in-person and virtual events, because here's the deal. The diligent work of daily, weekly, and seasonal life tending is a key that can unlock dreams and unearth gifts, revive relationships, and help us to bloom into our truest selves. I love sharing with audiences how if they are willing to get their hands dirty and commit to living a well-tended life, with the help of just a little bit of work magic, they can grow practically anything. I'm also a historical lecturer and beyond privileged to tell the intimate stories about my great-great-grandmother, prolific author Frances Hodgson Burnett, and of the life she tended inside her own secret garden walls. Are you looking for a unique speaker for your event, garden, or book club? I would love to be a part of it. DM me on social or email me at carrie at fhbandme.com. That's K-E-R-I at F-H-B-A-N-D-M-E.com. And let's chat. From your book, is there like, if, if somebody were to say like, what is the one thing that you want 
someone to walk away with? Like, what is that? Yeah. I, the big thing for me is uh, it's sort of the, the power of the portfolio, right? This is like work-life balance is bullshit. That's not a thing. It's not a thing. It was a term that was first coined. I think it was in the 19 late seventies or early eighties in the UK when they're basically trying to figure out how do we give pregnant women maternity leave and then get them back to work. It was always under the guise of like, how do we help those nice little mothers, you know, feed their children, but also get back to work. Um, work-life balance. It's a myth. And, um, and there's tons of research that debunks this myth as this idea that at any time work and life are, are at odds that like one is pulling away from the other and that your job is to find that perfect moment of equilibrium where like the seesaw is suspended. Right. So this is, this doesn't exist and nobody wants that. What they want is the ability to set and defend and also relax boundaries when they choose in order to attend to work and life when it matters to them, right? It's the ability to to turn that attention, that autonomy, that control, to turn the attention to the thing that needs their attention rather than kind of live in this, this framework, this structure that, that has been defined for them. And so the idea of a portfolio it says, number one, you are more than your job. You're more than your job today, but you're also more than your job ever. Like it, your identity is separate from your output. Um, you're worth more than your work. So that's point number one. Point number two is that you can diversify against the risk that is in the system. You know, uh, in my adult life, I have lived through now 9-11, the 2008 financial crisis and COVID, all of which were supposed to be like once in a century disruptions. I've had all three of them in the last 20 years, right? So, So clearly we are in an era where massive disruption is gonna gonna hit us every, I don't know, five to seven years. It is, there is risk and that sucks, but also the relationship between risk and reward is such that you want a little bit of risk in your portfolio. If you hide all of your cash under the mattress, your financial portfolio is not going to do very well. And, and this, uh, this false idea that if I just go to a big company, put my head down and like follow the, the line that like at some point I can opt out of risk. That's not true. I mean, you saw it yourself. So how can you diversify against that systemic risk by having these different components, your work, your moonlighting uh, gigs, or uh, you know, putting together kind of interesting combinations of skills and networks and income streams, you don't have to monetize every single thing that you do. Not into that, like hustle. This is not about hustle culture, yeah. but it is about you know, I can do all of these things. How can I have them on deck to to deploy in whatever proportion I want? And how do I make sure to be intentional about rest, family, self-care, all of those things that I say matter to me, but like never earn a spot on my calendaring. Like they're not, they're not on my, my outlook. Um, So it's always easy to forget them. Uh, How can you be really intentional about crafting your portfolio to include all of those things and be realistic about 
maybe this needs to take a break or that allocation goes to zero for now, knowing that you can rebalance later. And then it's that last point. You're always able to rebalance. Yes. Um, it is not uh, a sign of flakiness to change your mind when you suddenly need different things. You will go through seasons and you will need different things and you should rebalance. Yeah. I, I hope that people will listen and 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 read and and hear that it's okay to change. Yes. Well, I mean, because if people are so it's I think there's there's this thing in American culture too that like we're chasing this comfort level. And so any sort of shift or change seems to just like throw us off balance. So I that's mm-hmm. one thing why I love this idea of this portfolio life is it doesn't nothing foolproofs it, right? Like you're still mm-hmm. gonna have there's still gonna be storms, there's still gonna be tragedies, there's still gonna be all of those things. But yeah. um, you know, finding a way to weather that change that is inevitable. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think people are so afraid of change and resist it? I mean, uh, you know, obviously from like a psychological level, it's scary. You know what you know. And the idea of change is I'm going to go away from this thing I know, even if I don't love it, or even if it's not comfortable, at least I know that it's uncomfortable to go towards something that is unknown. Of course, that's like evolutionarily scary, right? I get that. but what you know, like what is here today is, is temporary. Like you change is not optional. No. The only question <laughs> is whether you are going to be pursuing change or whether you are going to wait and let change happen to you. And at least in my experience, letting it happen to me is far more disruptive than when I am in control to say, okay, it is time to make a change. Right. And one of the, I think one of the helpful things about a portfolio is you don't change everything at the same time. Right. (laughs) So when you see, like, I have all these moving pieces and I'm going to make a change in my job. Well, I still have that foundation of my relationships, my hobbies, maybe a, a, a side income stream from this other thing that can help sort of smooth the larger disruption of stepping away from this job and deciding what that next one is. And because you have that portfolio, I think it gives you that resilience to be intentional about that change to say, I'm not going to take the very first thing that pays me because Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm desperate and I need it. It gives you the space to say, I'm going to look for where I fit. It brings me back full circle to my puzzle piece analogy. I'm going to look for where I am wanted for where my skills are valued, for where my way of communicating is consistent, right? That um, I love that quote. I think it's been erroneously attributed to Einstein, but like a fish climbing a tree, of course, is going to feel stupid. I just butchered it, right? But like in, in the wrong context, you feel out of place and like you're the one who's wrong. And it just means you're in the wrong place. Right. So, so being open to change means you're never stuck at continuously trying to climb the tree that you never should be climbing. Look for where you should belong and, and, and be excited about that change. And I think, I don't know, I've changed so many times at this point that like staying still is actually the more uncomfortable thing. <laughs> and now I'm working really hard. Like you're happy. Stop thinking about what needs to be tw- like, just stay put for a, a hot second. Yeah. Um, 
So that's, that's my growth opportunity is to sit still for a little bit. Oh my gosh. I, I love it so much. I think people are going to get so much out of this already so far. Um, do you have any, whether it's through the portfolio life um, process or, or just in your regular life, do you have any like daily, weekly, monthly practices that you use um, for you yourself to live your best well-tended life? So my, one of my big ones, I do this twice a year, um, is, is both setting my annual goals and then kind of checking in on them, revising them, uh, and leaving myself notes. And I use this process called the balance scorecard. Now this is used in the business world and I repurposed it for my personal balance scorecard, but it's a process where, um, it lets me sort of set like my big intention, my, my like long-term goals, the things I care about one of them. And, and I, I do this across professional, personal, uh, relationships and financial, um, relationships is personal health, health and financial. Uh, and among them, you know, one of them is like be generous, right? That's like the big picture. And so then under be generous, it's like, okay, so what is my goal for this year? This, these are my, like the things that I care about donating to this year. And then I set specific actionable targets and I, I try to structure them to be a very clear at the end of the year. Yes. No. Did I meet the goal? Did I not meet the goal? And if I didn't meet the goal, I leave myself sort of uh, comments of like, was that the right goal? Uh, maybe you've set this goal for two years now and you still don't hit it. Like let's think about maybe a different way to reframe this. Um, but it gives me a way to look across all, again, all the things I care about back to like managing and measuring. I, I recognize that not everything that matters can be measured. Right. And there are lots of things that can be measured that don't matter at all. So part of this is, is the work of setting the goals is I think more valuable than like actually checking in on them. Um, but I try to sort of set these goals across these things that I care about. So that again, when I get back to that one incremental hour, I can look at that at any given point and say, you know, you said this thing mattered to you and you haven't done it in a while. Is that something that we should check in on, make, make space for? It also helps me as I see them all in a list it helps me be realistic about like, eh, this list is longer than Lord of the Rings. Like, is this feasible <laughs> right. or do I need to prioritize, right? The whole point of priorities is like you have limited resources. So what matters most and maybe what needs to go on the back burner until next year. So I try to do that twice a year. Sometimes I, I can check in a little more often, maybe quarterly, um, but that's sort of my, my big picture habit. And then my smaller one is just once a week, sort of Sunday night. Sometimes it's Saturday morning. It's whenever I can get a little, a, a moment of solitude with my children. Um, I look at my calendar for the next, not just week, but usually week two, three weeks. And I put everything on my calendar. I put my workouts. I put my hobbies. I sometimes I put in naps, right? I'm like, Hey, that's going to be a really tough week. By the time we get to Saturday, I'm going to need a nap. And I will sit down with my husband and I will say, heads up, either you have to be available on Saturday afternoon or right. we have to get a babysitter because I am going to need some rest time to recover from and prepare for the other pieces of my life. And so everything goes on the calendar. I share a calendar with my husband. All of our, our kid things are, are a different color that we both have access to. 
and we run our family like a team. Um, and I don't know if that's like a crass capitalistic thing to like put family time on the calendar. I mean, I'll put time on my no. husband on the calendar too. And, yeah, and you know listen, what time I mean? Like it's getting yeah, scheduled. I do, listen, I, I do. We do that. Absolutely. Because it's, it's, um, if you don't put it on the calendar, it's going to get missed. It just and does. As long as there's an empty spot on the calendar, something will take it. So I want to take it first for the things that matter to me. And then only what's left can be parceled out to other people. And then it's really easy to say no, when I can look at my calendar, I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. There's nothing left for you now. So do you leave 85% or do you leave for that extra (sighs) weight? Listen, I don't math. So I got to think, like, I don't, I always tell people like, I don't math after five or before five, like it's a general general rule. So, so so I leave. 15%, I, I do try in there. Try. I do try. I, for the most part, that wiggle room is on the weekends. My yeah. weekdays are pretty tightly packed, but that tells me, you know, we do, I mean, you know, I, I have a toddler who's does like gymnastics and sometimes we have swim class for the other, but we really keep our scheduled things for the weekends to be yeah. maybe three things over both days. And for the most part, that's our downtime. That's our family time. That's our chill time. And, you know, if something amazing pops up, then like, yeah, I'll say yes to it if it's on the weekend, but the bar is very high. Um, and, and I, I'm, I'm trying to get better at, at like I started scheduling lunch on my weekdays because I wasn't doing that for a while and I could go, you know, four or five days in a row, not eating lunch. Um, and I realized I was like, no, 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 you got to schedule that in if you want that break. And, and so I'm trying to like not eat lunch at my computer. Like I, I take a walk or I get up or I, I don't know, go sit with someone and have a conversation. Right. So, so those little things, um, I try to block them out, you know, buffer time gets a spot yeah. on my calendar, buffer time <laughs> for going to the hospital at this time of day, there's probably going to be traffic. So let's build a buffer so that you're not yeah. stressed going into what is already a stressful situation. It's huge. Oh my gosh. I'm still not great. It's a, we're all in a learning process. Yes, it is. Listen, I, you know, and no garden is perfect and no life is perfect. (laughs) It's all all just a work in progress. Like it's, and it's constantly changing and rotating and moving and, and uh, process is the point, right? It's, it's not, there's no there's no end goal. I always say like, I want to know how the story ends. And one of my friends finally said like, the story ends the day you die. Like up until that point, the story doesn't have an end. And that's not the point. No, no, not the process is the point. Yes. Journey. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Oh my goodness. Y'all, this has been so much fun, but now it's time for my favorite part of each and every show. And it's based on my own life-tending journal practice. But first, let me be clear about that. This is not your grandma's journaling practice. This is, however, by far the most important tool in my life gardening shed. That's because it's a growth chart and a reflection diary and a planting reminder and even an observation deck and research notebook all rolled into one. And when used daily, this journaling practice is a life gardening game changer. And it's guaranteed to produce big, beautiful, purpose-filled blooms in any season. 
And here's the best part. It is free for a limited time. So click on the free journal template link in the show notes or head on over to thewelltendedlife.com and dig in for your best well-tended life. And here's the best part. Right now, for a limited time only, I'm offering a free journal template to get you started. So click on the free journal template link in the show notes or head on over to thewelltendedlife.com and dig in for your best well-tended life. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you to look back on your journey. Yeah. Then, um, so I my big my big thing is my journal. So uh, every every day in my journal, I look back and try and spot from the day before. I don't, I don't try and spot. I do spot because there's always some little bits of joy, goodness, and growth mm-hmm. in the day prior. Um, really, just because I think it's important. There's a quote from Secret Garden that says, uh, "Mary had not noticed it before, but she looked up and saw it." And I don't want anybody to miss. I know I don't want to miss, especially on those hard days. I don't want to miss remembering that there is goodness and joy and growth in every single day. So uh, look back and tell me like, what's bringing you joy right now? Mm. Honestly, one of the things that brings me the most joy is that no matter how harried every morning is getting two children dressed and out the door in a Boston winter, when we live on a third floor of a three family walk-up, I don't know why we made that decision. No matter how harried that is, the last thing I do before I get in the car is kiss my husband goodbye. Mm. And we make sure that we get that moment. The kids are already strapped in. They're screaming. They're listening to Moana, whatever. We get that like 30 seconds to just connect and and make sure we're like, how are you? Have a good day. I love you. I don't take it for granted. I worked very hard to find my husband. I went on years of terrible dates, truly (laughs) terrible. I was in relationships that made no sense. I worked hard to find my husband and I will not take that relationship for granted. Oh my gosh. Y'all at home who's listening, you need to go out and find her TED talk (laughs) online date. I actually, I just sent it to a girlfriend who I saw, she posted something on TikTok and she was like, y'all, what is up with the cat pictures? Why do men have a cat in their picture? He's like, she's like, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Anyway, no, I used a sales funnel for dating. I have a business analogy for anything. I used a sales funnel for online dating and it brought me my husband. It's so, so it's so brilliant. It's absolutely <laughs> so brilliant. Um, I, I know so many people are going to benefit from it. Okay. So goodness is a little bit deeper for me. Goodness are the mm. things that I'm grateful for. Mm. So what are you feeling grateful for these days? Every minute I can get my baby to laugh. He's going through a health thing right now. There's a lot of crying. There's a lot of screaming. There's a lot of pain that we're working on, on fixing, but he just giggles and lights up any room he's in. And one of my favorite things is at bath time when we're getting in the pajamas and putting on lotion and I just like tickle the hell out of him. And he's just, he's like gasping for air. He's laughing so hard. And it's just... It gives me hope that we're going to get through this medical stuff to the other side where he can have more giggles and a lot less crying. Oh my goodness. It's so good. One of my favorite treasures from my kids when they were young is I have a picture of my son with one of those like little push buttons that that you recorded and Mm -hmm. it's of him giggling when he was probably, you know, 10, 11 months Mm -hmm. old. And it's, 
there's the giggle at that age is something that is contagious. And then mm-hmm. it literally like shoots joy through anybody's bodies. Like it doesn't matter what, what's going on. Like it, it, yes. it changes the cells in your body to hear a, a kid at that age giggle. It's true. It's true. Oh my gosh. It's so good. All right. Final one is growth. Uh, like what life lessons are you learning or like, where are you growing? Where's, where's, where's all that coming from these days? I mean, I think my biggest, the biggest thing I'm working on right now is being willing to sit still. I have been in motion my entire life and, and it's brought me a lot of wonderful things. Um, being willing to move and go after what I want, uh, traveled the world. I've climbed mountains. I've run marathons, like being in motion has really worked for me. And I think it's become a bit of a bad habit. And I want to temper that muscle by building the other one of stability. Um, I I used to take dance classes back when I had all this free time, pre-babies. And I took a dance class at, uh, I think it was at like Mark Morris uh, back in, in New York, where the instructor kept talking about you need flexibility and stability as a dancer. Like one gives you strength and the other gives you motion. And without both, you're going to get hurt or you're not going to be able to make anything. Um, And so I think I've overdeveloped my flexibility, my motion muscle, and now I got to build my stability muscle. It's huge. I remember after I, I lost my job with Crayola, I I remember uh, my friend invited me to come and sit by the pool with her on a random afternoon, but it was a, during the week, right? So it would have normally mm-hmm. been a work day. Mm-hmm. And I remember laying there and I just, I started crying and she was mm-hmm. like, what is wrong with you? I was like, I don't know how to do this. this. I don't know how to be still, not have all like the things Um, it's, it is definitely something that you have to develop if you Mm -hmm. have gone, I was exactly the same way, gone the other, the Mm -hmm. other way. Oh, Mm -hmm. well, good. I I wish you well in that, uh, (laughs) no, there's so much goodness comes from, from stillness. Uh, and, uh, I always, I I think that when we're called to be still, it means that there's a big season ahead of you. Mm. Um, there's a, there's a reason for that stillness, right? You got to, you got to build up the energy before something it happens. Even in, in our, in our restaurant business there, when mm-hmm. things are quiet um, it's, it is always the quiet before the storm. It's mm-hmm. crazy. It'll be, you know, several days and you're like, what happened? Where did all the customers come <laughs> and This like flood comes in and, you know, you just, you learn when you hear those, those signs to like sit and be and do all the housekeeping and the, the things, um, yeah. the, we fill the ketchup bottles. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the quiet behind the scenes stuff yeah. um, uh, to prepare. And I, I think that's why a lot of times we're called to those seasons. So, yeah. oh my gosh, thank you so much. Can you tell everybody how to follow you, find you, buy your book, all the things? Sure. So on virtually all social media, I am at CM Walla. That stands for Christina Marie Wallace. I don't know why or how I ended up there, but that's where I am. CM Walla. Um, or you can find me on LinkedIn, Christina Wallace. Uh, and my book is The Portfolio Life, which you can pre-order at your favorite retailer, um, or you can head to portfoliolife.com to get an easy link to a variety of retailers you can choose from there. But um, I'm, I hope this resonates with you. I hope it connects. And if it does, please send me a note. 
um, because I love hearing from folks about uh, about how this might impact them. Uh, I think you are on the path to impact uh, many, many, many people. So uh, I don't doubt that for a moment. Um, Gosh, everybody, thank you so much uh, for spending your time with us and listening to this podcast. I sincerely hope that this has inspired you to diversify a little bit and to reevaluate your own work, home, personal portfolio. Um, uh, you know, the secret garden had actually said she worked, she worked and she dug and pulled up weeds steadily, only becoming more pleased with her work every hour instead of tiring of it. Mm. It seems to her like a fascinating sort of play. And uh, while every day at work and life is probably not necessarily always going to be fascinating kind of play, um, I do believe that this idea of a portfolio life and diversifying and and making changes when you need to um, is going to take some of the stress out of it um, and help it feel a little bit more like play. So uh, until next time, y'all, blessings and blooms. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you. Hey y'all, it is time to wrap up this awesome interview with the heart tap section. As you know, if you've been listening for a while in my journal practice, I write down what I call heart taps, which are basically the things that speak directly to my heart. And so here are the heart tap moments that I wrote down from this interview. One, instead of saying, I don't fit in anywhere, reframe that and say, I just need to find out where I fit. Because the truth is, Fitting in is not a judgment call on you. It's just an observation. Two, know who you are separate from what you do. That way, if what you do gets taken away, you don't lose who you are. Three, don't postpone feeling by doing. Four, your purpose is so much greater than your job. Five, The world's best run manufacturing lines operated at 85% and so should we. Six, ask yourself, are you over promising your time? Seven, the word multitasking was created to describe a computer's function. It was never meant to describe a human. Eight, work-life balance is bullshit. It's not a thing, it's a myth. Quit trying to chase it. Nine, change is inevitable. The question is, will you pursue change or will you wait until it happens to you? Oh my gosh, it was so good. I loved this interview so much and I hope you loved it too. If you did, make sure to share it with a friend. Also, if you can do me one more favor today, take a minute and hop on over to Apple Podcast and leave a kind and thoughtful review for The Well-Tended Life. You see, this is how people find us, and every positive review helps us to unlock the door for someone else who might be in need of some life-tending magic, too. Thanks again for spending time with me today on this life-tending journey. Don't forget to come hang out with us over at the Well-Tended Life's Instagram page. When you get there, make sure to introduce yourself to me in my DMs and tell me what are you ready to grow so that I can start cheering you on. Until next time, y'all. Blessings and blooms.